Good morning, Village Church. Grab some water on the way over here. Did you know we put lemons in the water at this church now? I was like, I'm like fired up now. You buckle up. My name is David. I'm one of the pastors here. Baptism Sunday. We're really excited this morning. We get to uh, open up Jonah chapter 3. We'll see that God is gracious and merciful, and his heart is for us to turn and believe. This morning, we also get to see a picture of the heart of God as we celebrate baptisms. We get to hear about God's transforming work in their lives. And so I just say, I'm really excited for this morning. Are you excited for this morning? Yeah. That's it. That's my intro. So if you were like, wow, okay, just go to this church. This church doesn't, God doesn't even have an intro. I'm very sorry. Let's get to work. Verse 1 says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So the book of Jonah is one, one story, one incredible story, and you can read the whole thing in about seven minutes. And Jonah is a prophet of God. God tells him to go tell the Ninevite people to repent, and Jonah says, I kind of have a problem with that. Um, and the problem is, I don't like those people. So I don't want to do that. And so instead of going northeast to Nineveh, he buys a boat ticket to travel as far west, really, as possible at this time. But along the way, God sends a storm. Jonah's thrown into the sea. God sends a fish. Jonah's swallowed by the fish, but he's protected inside. And it's during that time that it seems that Jonah has a moment of repentance. And the, so the fish dumps Jonah out on the beach, some sort of like uber submarine thing. Probably a lot smoother of a ride than most Ubers you've been in. Maybe smells better too. And instead of God just piling on Jonah for all of his disobedience, we pick up in chapter 3 and God goes right back to his command. He says, arise and go to Nineveh. Look at these. These are the two commands of God. The first two verses of chapter 1 and the first two verses of chapter 3, chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Then chapter 3. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now, if you're thinking, wow, it kind of seems like God's giving Jonah a second chance, that's because God's giving Jonah a second chance. The story of Jonah is like a beautiful picture of Exodus 34, 6, just playing out in front of us. When God makes a covenant with the Israelites through Moses, look at it with me. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And God shows his mercy by giving Jonah a second chance. And we see the same three commands here in the Hebrew text. We see, arise, go, call out. Or you could say, arise, go, proclaim. What's he going to proclaim? God says very simply, the message that I tell you, which is a fun way for God to say, I'm not going to tell you yet, right? And the journey that Jonah is going to go on, I mean, you're really depending on the beach that the fish chose, you're looking at about 500 miles. So Jonah's saying, what am I going to say? And God is saying, I'll tell you when you get there. 
And God makes the same statement to Jonah that he rejected the first time. The only difference is now a few things have happened, have they not? There's been a few minor events in his life. He took a swimming lesson in a hurricane. He got an all-access pass to a fish-feeding experience. And now it's been three long days in the fish. And after everything, God seems to be saying, Jonah, let's... Um, Let's go to Nineveh now. Yeah? Maybe you think of this like a mafia movie scene where the mob boss says, you're going to do this for me. And then the other dude says, no, I'm not. And so he like breaks his finger or something, you know, get, get his attention a little bit. Hold his head underwater or kill the family's cat, you know. And then he says, I'm going to say it one more time. You're going to do this for me, right? You can kind of have that picture of the classic mafia movie in the book of Jonah, but that's not the God that we see in our Bibles, right? We see actually all throughout the pages, we see God's love for Jonah. And Jonah in his own prayer in chapter 2 seems to understand that God is doing this out of love. It's a rescuing story. In fact, Exodus 34, 6 that we just read, Jonah himself is going to quote from Exodus 34, 6 just in the next chapter, chapter 4. Look at this, Jonah 4, verse 2. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So Jonah's opinion about the loving character of God is actually more solidified after the terrifying storm and after his mind believed that he was going to drown and after he's swallowed up by a fish. Had me thinking this week, I mean, there's, there's professing Christians who focus all of their energy on keeping God from being mad at them. But we look at the Bible and it's not the relationship that God is offering. I think we could say that the people who will be following Christ in 10 years from now, 20 years, 30 years. They're the ones who are fixing their eyes on the character of God and, and the love of God for us and, and training our hearts to believe this is the best life. We're a people who fear the Lord, absolutely, but we love the Lord and we know his heart for us. You could say it this way. There's a difference between this is how I live because I don't want God to hate me and this is how I live because I know that God loves me. Does that make sense? Jonah is a man who has come to see that God is gracious and merciful and loving. And at least for now, Jonah is ready to obey. We'll pick up, look at verse 3. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Verse 3 says, Jonah rose and went to Nineveh. And here at the end of verse 3, we learn the size of the city itself is very large. And so he's now walking around this huge city, calling them to repent. And remember, this is after he's traveled around 500 miles. Historians would say it probably took maybe about a month just to get there, assuming he had access to a camel. Some of you guys are like doomsday preppers. You're like, David, of course I have access to a camel. Don't question that, okay? 
food, water, camels, like the big three, I'm covered. We don't know if Jonah had one. Imagine an entire month traveling across the land. That's a lot of time to think about what just happened in your life, right? An entire month to argue in your mind about the plans of God and whether God's plans are as good as your plans. It's an entire month to think about how close you came to death and God saved you. And so Jonah lands on the beach and he's like, man, I think I need like a mental health day after all that. And God's like, how about a mental health month? Just start walking. But in verse 4, we finally see this message of Jonah. It's not very detailed. The message is basically that the clock is ticking. It says, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This word's really fascinating. In the Hebrew, you could translate it overthrown. You could translate it uh, turned or overturned, turned upside down, even transformed, like some sort of reversal or even a change of the heart. It's a really fascinating word study because it's almost like it's carrying the weight of multiple meanings, and it's carrying the weight of all the sovereignty of God in this word. It's incredible. We see this in the Bible. And we have the same Hebrew language here as we find in Genesis chapter 19 in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah when God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. And you get a sense later that Jonah in his preaching was probably hoping to see the city overthrown in that way and the people destroyed in that way. He was looking for Sodom and Gomorrah round two, the Nineveh, the Nineveh version, right? But instead, by the sovereign mercy of God, it's not the city that is overthrown. It's the hearts of the people that are overthrown. And they repent of their ways, and the city and the hearts in the city are transformed. And how do we know? Look at the next verse, verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And so the transformation is beginning, and their hearts are being softened, and it seems to be taking place internally in the hearts and also now externally in the fasting and the weeping and the mourning, and it's taking place, it says, in the rich and the poor, the powerful and the weak. We don't know the fullness of their repentance. We know that the Ninevites were known for being a brutal and wicked people. They were known for their violence. We don't know exactly what this repentance looked like, and, and, but we do know that 800 years later, Jesus would actually use the Ninevites as an example. Look in Matthew chapter 12. It says, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. 
And so perhaps they didn't just repent of their violent sin, but perhaps many of them put their trust in the God of Israel to be saved, not just temporarily in this life, but forever in the next life. It doesn't document this in Jonah. But clearly Jesus had some great things to say, or at least that they would be an example to others. The story continues, verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. No man or beast will eat or drink. I mean, you got to like pause and acknowledge for a second. These animals were probably just kind of rolling their eyes at this whole thing, right? Like, come on, dude, you don't need to involve us. What did we do? That's a tough call by the king. But at the end of verse 9, the king leads his people into this repentance. Why? He says, so we may not perish. He doesn't want it for himself. He doesn't want it for his people. He doesn't want the people to perish. And this continues a theme that we see throughout Jonah of just regular pagan people caring about the value of human life but what we see in the book of Jonah, the person who doesn't seem to care about human life is Jonah. And the story of Jonah is written in a way that we see into the heart of Jonah. And this is the third time now that we've seen examples of just random dudes in the story, or the king, or the sailors, or the boat captain, people who don't even know God, and yet they're concerned with human life. Here's three examples. First, the captain. In chapter 1, and the sailors later in chapter 1, and now the king in chapter 3. But Jonah, the prophet of God, who literally hears the voice of God and speaks for God, he does not care. In fact, it bothers Jonah that God would not destroy these people. He hates these people. And so his message is, 40 days, you're getting wiped out. We don't know what else he said, but we don't see in here that he's begging them, pleading with them. It doesn't say that his heart was broken for them to turn to God. It just seems like a guy who's doing what he needs to do to not be back inside of a fish, you know? Seems like he hates them like he always did. And this is, seems to be confirmed in chapter 4. And Pastor Josh next Sunday is going to take us more deeply into this. Because God does not destroy Nineveh. And what happens in verse 1 of chapter 4, look on the screen. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And then he goes on to say that he would rather die than see God forgive his enemies. And he regrets everything. It's madness. There's a quote by C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce. It's pretty well known. He says, there's only two kinds of people in the world. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. 
It's always been an interesting quote, and I think for good reason theologians have pushed back on this quote, because it seems really clear in Scripture that time and again, God will even rescue people who don't, do not ask to be rescued. And so maybe in some ways this quote can become overly simplistic. For example, the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, the sovereignty of God is on full display. God is just plucking his greatest enemy off of the road and bringing him to eternal salvation. Paul just wakes up that morning and he's like, I'm, I'm going on this road to go kill some Christians. And God says, no, actually, surprise, surprise, you're going on this road to become a Christian <laughs> because I said so, right? So that's kind of the tension of the C.S. Lewis quote, right? <laughs> and yet, C.S. Lewis is making a really good point that all around us we see people with a pride that rejects any God who doesn't fit their moral standards. Or as Roman says, much better than me, we make God in our own image. People say, if there's a God and he acts like this, if there's a God and he allows this to happen in my life, or he allows those people to be forgiven, well, forget it. I don't want to go to heaven. I don't want to be near that God. People say, if that's what God is like, I don't want to know him. That's tragic foolishness, right? That's tragic pride. That's incomprehensible arrogance in light of who God is and all God has done. If there's a God big enough to create this whole universe, we should be terribly afraid of being quick to judge that God, right? I mean, just saying it out loud exposes so much of the foolishness. I am going to judge God. How will I judge God? With the little mind that I have because he gave it to me. <laughs> Every human mind in all of history is not even a grain of sand compared to the universe. I thought this was a good time to just pause and say, you know, it's 2023 and you're stuck here listening to me as your preacher this morning. You could have been born in the fourth century. Maybe Augustine would have been your preacher and he doesn't waste nearly as many words as I do. This is how he says it. He says, if you understand him, it is not God. <laughs> Those are shorter sermons. You get to go outside and eat the food on first Sunday with Augustine. The whole thing happens way faster. <laughs> you know who else says it good? God says it pretty good in Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You got to wonder at a certain point, like, what are the odds that we just don't quite know enough to be a good judge of God, right? I think the odds are high. When I was uh, a teenager, we would always do Mexico mission trips going up. Some of you guys remember they used to go down there, you build a house or do, do like a VBS for the kids. And uh, when I became like old enough to be in charge of those trips, it just blew my mind, like, that, I was like, I can't believe my parents let me go. Like, how would they have ever trusted that guy? That guy's like 30 years old, and he was like driving a van with me and all my dumb friends, you know, across the border. And 
I remember they would tell us, like, hey, listen, you know, sometimes, you know, like, the police will pull you over, and maybe they want some money, or maybe you'll get stopped at the border, and you might see some guys with, like, a big gun, and you just got to be cool, okay? I know you're 13-year-old boys. They say, sit up straight, eyes forward, shut your mouth, right? <laughs> I remember being 13 years old, going past those guys, getting pulled and stopped and talked to. I'm 13 years old. I don't even know where I am. I don't know how to drive a car. I don't speak the language. I don't know the, le the legal system, but I know enough to shut my mouth, right? <laughs> I think a lot about this with God. And of course, we love questions. We love debates and discussions. If you went to a church where people didn't think it was okay to ask questions about God, <laughs> you should run away. But it's all got to be under the umbrella of humility, right? Because we could sit here and debate things about God with all of our limited knowledge that would be like a drop of water in a bucket of who God is and why God moves the way he does. And I could list out all the things I would say, God, God, why is my life like this? Why does this happen to me? Why is this so unfair? But the question is, ultimately, has God proven his character enough that we can cry out to him, we can wrestle with him, we can plead with him, and still ultimately come to the conclusion of, God, you know what is best. Your ways are best. I trust the story that you're writing. I trust that you are a merciful God, and I trust however that's going to look. Amen? Does that make sense? But Jonah, Jonah can't do it. Can't seem to do it. When we think about the different reactions to the mercy of God, my mind goes to the parable of the two sons or the parable of the prodigal son. Because the younger brother in this story, he returns from blowing all of his inheritance and living a life of foolishness and sin. And he destroys his name and his reputation, and he blows half of his father's wealth. And he comes home, and his father says nothing about the money. He simply loves his son, and he throws a party. But I was thinking this week, if you, if you found a thousand kids in Sunday school, or even kids who grew up in Sunday school, and you said, can you draw me a picture of how that parable ends? I think most of them would draw a picture that looks like this. The, the son being embraced by the father on the road. If you open up your Bible to this story, and in our English translations, this, the parable of the prodigal son, there are 491 words in the English language in this, you know what I'm saying. There are 491 words in the ESV translation of this parable. And when the father runs out to embrace his son, at the moment of the story when he's holding his son, Jesus has only said 230 of the words. We're not even halfway through that story. And as many of you are familiar with, the parable ends with a totally different scene. The parable does not end at that moment when the, the dad is holding his son and saying, it's all good, it's over. You're 230 words into a 500-word story. It ends 
with a party going on inside, and the older brother is standing outside. Why is he standing outside? Luke 15, 28, what does it say? He was angry and refused to go in. And so for years and years, you could have walked up to the older son as he works out in the fields, and you could have said, if your dad threw a party tonight, would you be excited to go in? And he'd say, are you kidding? That would be amazing. But now that the party is here, he will not go in. Why not? Because the party is an insult to his pride. If the worst of sinners can be treated like this, then what does that say about all of my efforts? What an insult to every single moment of my life when I chose to do what is right. And so the barrier to the party is not that he wasn't invited. And the barrier to the party is not that the door was locked for him and he couldn't get in. The barrier to the party was ultimately his own pride. He didn't like the way that the father was writing the story. And he's saying, no, 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 this is how it should go. Let me just tell you, first, little bro needs some sackcloth and ashes. <laughs> and like a typical firstborn, he would be like, and I just happen to have some right here. Right? <laughs> first, little bro needs sackcloth and weeping. Second, how about we start with a party for me, specifically celebrating the fact that I'm nothing like him. <laughs> God's saying, listen, just as much as the younger brother needs to repent of his evil deeds, the older brother needs to repent of his prideful heart. And just as the Ninevites needed to repent of their evil deeds, Jonah needed to repent of his prideful heart, right? The question of the father in the parable and the question of God to Jonah is something like this. Why are you not just amazed that I am opening this door for both of you, right? Whoever you are, whatever your life has been like, however you see the people around you and the world around you, the question for you is, are you simply amazed that God has opened the door for you? We have a God who's merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love. He opens the door to the feast, to a people who don't deserve it. Why would we spend any time in life monitoring the door when we could just walk through the door with joy? God invited Jonah into that multiple times. What a tragedy. Last verse, verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And so chapter 3 sets the stage for the tragedy of chapter 4. We see into the heart of Jonah like never before that in the life of Jonah, the Bible is showing us that there's more than one way you can run away from God, right? Option number one, Jonah already tried this one. You can get on a boat and literally try to flee from God, and it looks like utter foolishness getting on a boat to escape God. God says, where were you when I made the earth? Where were you when I made the forests and made the wood? They built a boat out of wood from trees I made. I filled the Mediterranean Sea. You're getting on a boat to flee from me. It looks ridiculous. But it also looks ridiculous when you try to run from God in your heart, right? 
You can travel 500 miles to obey God, and you can say what he says to say, and you can do what he says to do, and yet your heart can be running from God all the same. And so, as soon as we open chapter 4 next Sunday, you're going to see pretty clearly that the heart of Jonah is still on a boat headed for Tarshish, right? Even while he stands inside the gates of Nineveh. And so this morning, we got to say this, Village Church, the fact that none of us has been swallowed by a fish, that's not exactly confirmation that we're all good with God and our hearts are good. You say, David, you don't understand. I'm on like year 43 of living outside of a fish. I'm, I've been exterior to all fish my whole life. God is clearly pleased with me and my heart. The story of Jonah shows us that our hearts could be running away from God even while we sit in chairs in this room, even while we sing songs in this room, even while we say all the right things. Turning away from evil, surrendering your life to God, it's never going to be easy, but you've got to admit we couldn't ask for a better God. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. If you've been running from this God in any sort of way, you can let the words of chapter 3 be a warning and an encouragement to you. There's something so much better for you. It's never too late, and you're never too far gone, right? I had this illustration, and it was so bad that it, I couldn't even create it, even with my cool AI art software. So I'm just going to say it out loud, and you're just going to picture it in your heads. Some of you are running from God in some area of your life, and you think that you look like a Navy SEAL sneaking across a beach in the darkness of night, full camouflage, and you're just killing it. But in reality, from God's perspective, you look like a hamster on a wheel under a floodlight. It just looks ridiculous. God sees everything, and you're not going anywhere. But most importantly, there's a better way for us, right? Because our repentance is joy. Lastly, we look at this story through the lens of the gospel, because, of course, the Bible doesn't end in Jonah. I don't know. Hopefully that's not news to you, but... Some people might run from repentance because they're not ready to commit to being perfect. That's the whole message of the gospel, though, right? Christ was perfect on our behalf. I said at the beginning, the book of Jonah is a story that brings to life Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is quoted throughout Scripture, and you can grab it in different places. You can grab it in Psalm 148, whatever, but... When you go back to where it is from Exodus 34, and you understand the context, you say, well, it's God offering to make a covenant with the Israelites. Wrong. It's God offering to make a covenant with the Israelites again after they had already failed and began worshiping an idol the first time that Moses returned with the tablets. That is the context of all of this. That is the context of the quote in Exodus 34 that Jonah then quotes 
The context is we are weak, we are stubborn, we fall, we fail. God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And most importantly, because of the cross, when God looks upon us and he sees all of our failures and he sees all of our attempts to run away from him, he sees us covered in the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. And so Village Church, what a cool morning for us to celebrate baptisms because the message of Jonah is the message of the gospel of Jesus, that God is gracious and merciful. We can repent and believe and be saved. And if anyone truly was saved in Nineveh through the work of God, it's not because they believed in themselves or they just stopped doing all their bad things, but it's because they put their faith in God for salvation. And if you've never put your faith in Jesus to cover your sins, this is how you can be brought from death to life. And this morning we get to sing to this God. We get to sing to a God who's gracious and merciful. And I don't know, maybe there's something in your life that you're running from. Maybe there's something in your life that is in desperate need of repentance this morning. I just say, like, you're not turning to a God who's just mad at you. You're turning to the God of Exodus 34 who saw his people reject him and then said, let's do the tablet thing again, (laughs) you know? He's going to do it again. And so we get to sing, and we're going to get to hear stories of God's work in the hearts of people. We're going to see two people be baptized today, and we get to add two more stories to the list of thousands upon thousands over thousands of years, and every story points to the mercy of God. Amen? Yes? good news for us. God is merciful beyond what we could ever imagine, and he's loving beyond what we could ever deserve. You believe that? Yeah. Let's celebrate this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you for a story that points us to you. Um, We thank you for a story that points us to your heart, points us to our own failures, and it brings us to a place of seeing how good you are and how good you are to receive us in all of our imperfection and failures. I'm going to give you a moment to just pray to God and just talk to God in your own heart. Maybe there's something in your life that God wants to reveal to you that you just feel like you've been running from something and... The temptation of Jonah, right? It's like the pastor's going to come up and say some cheesy thing like, what are you running from? What's your boat? I don't care how cheesy that is at all. I think you should ask yourself that question. What am I running from? What am I not repenting of? I'm going to give you a chance to talk to God.
God, would you hear all of our prayers? You help us to feel the love you have for us this morning. You're just a good God. I'm grateful to celebrate baptisms this morning and see these lives changed by you. I'm grateful to fill this room with people who know the love of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, hey, it's first Sunday, and uh, we have so much to celebrate, but something that we love about first Sunday is... Uh, if you have kids in the village, kids' classrooms, I want to ask you to go uh, get them, bring them in. We're going to worship together. We have some songs. We want the kids to witness baptisms. We want them to drive home in the car and ask you questions. And uh, we're going to celebrate. We're going to fill this room with our whole church family. So you can go grab your kids. If you don't have a kid in the kids' classrooms, we ask that you don't take someone else's kid. That's our only rule. But if you do have any kids, feel free to bring them in here. And we're going to worship. Would you stand with me as we worship together? you this morning, if the Lord is kind of stirring in your heart, um, yeah, just be encouraged that the running can stop and you can just rest, you can walk through that door, let's sing, let's praise him. Yeah. 
Again, again. He shall return. Here we go. And he shall return in robes of white. The blazing sun shall peace the night. And I will rise among the saints. My gaze transfixed on Jesus' face. Church's Baptism Sunday. Is that good? Yeah. We love every Baptism Sunday. I love every Baptism Sunday. I got to tell you, there's one thing um, about this particular Baptism Sunday that I really love in particular, and I've been thinking about it coming off our men's advance. You know, at the Village Church, we want to grow and multiply disciples who are delighting in Jesus who are declaring the good news about Jesus and displaying the life of Jesus, kind of disciples that we want Jesus to be creating here. And Jesus is doing that among the men and women in our church. And the thing that's kind of unique about the baptism this morning is that it's statistically not supposed to happen this way. Statistically, in the United States, young men are not really going to church, and young men are not getting saved in church in the same ways that we've seen over the years, but that's not true in every church, and I want to say by God's grace and His grace alone, that's not true in this church. And so, yeah, and so um, this morning, this morning we're going to see, this morning we're going to see two young men get baptized. And there's a story behind that. There, there are people behind those young men. There's a faithful mom that's been praying for one of them and, and, and faithfully parenting one of them. There's a, another young man that's a little older than him that's come alongside him in the life of our church and invested in his life, along with so many over the years. There's another young man, a man who uh, has been invested in by friends and family and found himself in a community group in this church with another man in his 30s who's investing in him um, and, and deeply in his life and other men coming alongside him. And, 
And so the things that we'll witness and see this morning are, are, are miraculous anytime we, rapt, uh, we witness a baptism because God does miraculous things in all of our lives. That's, that's true. And, and yet this morning in some particular way, coming off our men's advance, men, we had a great time together, didn't we? It was an amazing to be together and, and God moving among the men in this church. And, and we're going to see that this morning. And so I think it's particularly special, at least to me in some way, to see that. It's an evidence of God's grace that he's moving in the life of our church in particularly profound ways, and I hope you see that this morning. And so I want to invite up um, Elias Brasher and Peyton Block. I want you guys to come on up, and uh, we're going to start. Uh, yeah, you guys give them a hand. We're going we're gonna to start with Peyton, and uh, Peyton's going to come up with Tommy and Jaron. Tommy's been friends with Peyton for some time. They're in community group together. Um, Peyton is, uh, has been part of that community group for a while, and Jaron's been leading that group faithfully for, for a long time. And so, yeah, there you go. And if, uh, yeah, if you're a little slow, uh, that was, uh, was Jaron's kid. And, uh, all right. And so we asked Peyton just to share with us a little bit this morning about why he wants to be baptized and kind of what led him into this moment. So, Peyton, we're so glad to be part of your baptism this, this morning. I'm excited to celebrate the grace of God with you all this morning. Um, I have some notes. So, Growing up in the church for as long as I can remember, um, I've experienced quite a few baptisms. Um, but standing up here right now, I think they're all taken on a different light, and I'm looking at them a little differently. Um, I see how personal and beautiful each of those moments were, but also how communal they were as a physical outward act of something that's happening inward. Um, to be honest, for most of my life, the way I view baptism is at best incomplete and at worst completely backwards. I always looked at it as something that um, I needed to earn through my own righteousness um, and my own actions, and therefore as something that I wasn't ready for. Um, I think the root of that was fear, but over time that fear became apathy. The reality is that at none of those times was, was a time when the Lord had planned for me to take this step of trust um, and obedience. So over the past year especially, um, my relationship with Jesus has, has deepened through persistent reminders of the sweetness that comes with laying down the idol of self. I found a new joy in humbly leaning on the Lord as sustainer, provider, and healer because leaning on myself simply wasn't working. Just one example of the Lord's provision um, is the gift of friends, like these two guys right here, um, who have continued to, continued to walk alongside me and encourage me um, and remind me of what Ananias says to Paul after the road to Damascus and after his conversion. He says, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Although my, my road uh, was not as dramatic or as literal of a road as Paul's, we both ended up in the same place with brothers alongside of, and alongside of us, encouraging us to not fear. Um, 
so here I am. I'm taking this commitment to the Lord and our participation in his gospel. God has always known that today would be the day that I do this, um, that I would answer his call and take part in the work that he already finished on the cross. Although I will be no more saved and no more loved after coming out of the water, I want this to be, to be a commitment that I will continue to walk humbly in the purposes and plans that the Lord has for me. He also knew that each and every one of you would, would be here today, um, and I'm thankful that you are, and I'm thankful that we can celebrate. So uh, why wait? All right. Let's go. Riding up to Team SoCal when our middle school students were up there and seeing Elias and all the students up there having a good time, but also learning more about the Lord. I think the Lord moved in your life in some particular way there, and uh, this day has been coming for a little bit here. But we asked you to share a little bit about your story with us, and so Elise, you can do that now. I, th I think I, I think I'm, I don't have my glasses, but it says baptism thingamajigger. Yep. Uh -huh. So we called it we called it testimony, but thingamajigger works. Yes. Baptism thingamajigger. I did. I did. So yes. would you share your baptism thingamajigger with us? I will. I will proudly. Thanks. All right. All right. When I first came to the village, I watched a couple sermons, and these were the first sermons to ever catch my attention, from how they related the scriptures to real life, to how the presentation and writing made them engaging. As I came to the church and I became more involved in the community, I could see that everyone here had a genuine love and interest for each other that uplifts. Before coming to the church and meeting Christ, there was no desire for me to truly want to love or to make someone else's day better. But now that I have come to understand and to know Christ, thanks to everyone at this church, I see the joy in loving others. As I came to more services, the more everything clicked together. I see how strong our community is full of God love is, how persistent the village is to care for the people who are struggling and to share the gospel with others. 
I could see how God's word was affecting everything the church was doing, and I myself wanted this love of God too. Throughout this epic year journey, God saved me, and I grew closer to Christ. I've seen Christ work with so many different people in my life who he has either saved from hard times, abusive people, or returned to him when they have strayed away from his word. He is always faithful and good. Before understanding what Jesus had done to save me from my sins, I had a heart of stone. But thanks to his good grace, I've been redeemed, and my heart has been replaced with a heart of flesh. As I came to know Christ, I hated my sin, and I wanted to avoid it, knowing that God's perfect son had to endure the punishment for me. I was dead in my sins, but now that I believe that Jesus died for my sins, I had been raised to life, and I have become a son of God. My sins are covered by Jesus' blood. Baptism is a public confession of my faith and belief in the divinity, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Being baptized shows that I'm not afraid to reveal my faith to the world. I hope this would also be a motivation to anyone who has not been baptized to share your belief in Jesus to the world. I want to end by reading Psalm 73, verses 25 to 26, to remind everyone that everything on earth is going to eventually fade and decay, but our Father in heaven never will. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's a pretty good thing, McGregor. That was more than a thing, Majigger. That was that was pretty good. <laughs> that was pretty good. Uh, 